Hey guys, it's JM here, and we had a problem at Roots Chris uh, this past week. The microphone decided to go out, the battery in it, halfway through. So we got half of Joshua 4 recorded, but I figured we'd just go back and do it again for the podcast and for those of you that are following along on the video. And so we talked about, this will just be a recap of chapter 4, and then next week we'll be back to uh, filming it live. <clears throat> but in chapter 4, what we saw was that Israel... Is this was uh, the second part of Israel's crossing the Jordan. So remember, crossing the Jordan for Israel was like the Exodus 2.0, right? God was reaffirming what he had done through Moses. He was doing it now through Joshua to this new generation because they had all, most of them, the vast majority of them had been born in the wilderness and they had never seen the miracles of Exodus. They had never seen the crossing of the Red Sea. They'd heard about it. They've, you know, experienced it when they celebrate the Passover and all of these other um, festivals and concepts at least that were passed down from the previous generation, but they never seen it firsthand. And Joshua was, uh, he is Moses's choice for leader and God's choice, but the people, uh, for Joshua to have the stature in Moses's eyes that, or in, excuse me, in the people's eyes that Moses had, there needed to be some event that was on par parallel to what Moses had done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. And that's what the crossing of the Jordan is for Joshua. It's his, his Red Sea. It's his exodus. And so God's people, the, the, the wilderness period, this faithless generation that died in the wilderness, they are bookended by this miraculous passing over a body of water that was impassable. See, we saw last week, the Jordan at this point was at flood stage. This is pre-irrigation, pre-modern hydroelectric um, use of the water. So the Jordan River today is, in some parts, it's barely little more than a ditch. But at this point in the Jordan Valley, across from Jericho, at flood season, the river, which would have been in the springtime, the river would have been pretty powerful. All the meltwater coming down from Mount Hermon and into the Sea of Galilee and then down through the Jordan Valley, watering the land. I mean, this was, this was why the people served Baal. They believed, the Canaanites believed that Baal was the god who says the the storm god. He sends the rain. He sends the floods. He sends uh, what they need for their agricultural produce of the land. That's what Baal does. And so now at the height of Baal's season, at the height of the Jordan's um, power, just like God had done with the river, with the waters in Egypt, he's now going to do with the waters in Canaan. He's going to exercise his authority. God's going to, uh, I told the study in uh, Tuesday, I said, God's showing up and beating the gods of the other peoples on their own turf. So God went to Egypt and he beat the gods of Egypt in their own backyard. We saw, those of you that were with us for the Exodus, how each of the plagues that God sent were, uh, were basically little jabs, little knocks at different gods in the Egyptian pantheon, leading all the way up to uh, you know, the death of the firstborn, the, the firstborn of Pharaoh, who was himself considered the firstborn of Ra, the sun god. And so then God, when he leads Israel out of the <clears throat> Egypt and through the waters of the Red Sea, the prophets would later describe this as God crushing the head of the serpent. What does that mean? Well, the, the sea, as we've seen throughout this study, if you followed along with this, the sea is one of the ancient images of evil and of chaos and of the other gods. You know, the, the Babylonians had Tiamat, the, the sea monster, the chaos monster. And it was represented usually by a serpent of some type throughout the ancient Near East. These gods, the god of the sea, the god of chaos, the god of evil. And so when Israel crossed the Red Sea, when God made the waters part of Yom Suf, which is the modern day Gulf of Aqaba, um, them passing through that Red Sea, that was God 
showing his authority as sovereign suzerain over all the earth, his authority over even, even the chaos monster, even the God represented by the sea. And so God doing that, once again, stopping the flow of the Jordan at its flood stage, no less, is sending a very clear message, as we'll see in just a minute, to all, not only to Israel about what kind of God he is, but to all the nations who are watching what's happening as this new people comes up out of Egypt and starts to overthrow king after king, powerful king after powerful king, uh, west of the Jordan, or excuse me, east of the Jordan. And now as they're crossing into Canaan proper, just like Rahab and the people of Jericho had already expressed, there's going to be fear. What kind of people is this? And more importantly, who's the God that's fighting for them against all of these overwhelming odds. That's what the message of Joshua, and that's what especially these early chapters is bringing out, and even the crossing of the Jordan. That's why it's important. So we read in chapter 4 that Joshua commanded the priest. First he said, pick 12 men from your tribes, and then the priest take the ark and go stand in the middle of the river at flood stage, which is a pretty massive flow. They did that, and the water we saw last week, the water stopped. Like 15 miles upriver, it stopped. And the people were able to cross. So this was a this was not just like I saw a children's Bible uh, the other day. I was looking at it and it illustrated this scene. It was like the priests were standing there with the ark, and then there was like this flow of water just stopping like right beside them. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, the the water stopped like 15 miles up river. So this affected the whole Jordan Valley in that area. This was not a tiny little on one spot incident. Uh, so. Chapter 4 then picks up, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, go over in the presence of the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them, and the, the, the Hebrew uh, NIV says tell them, but the Hebrew literally says make known to them, not just tell. There's a word for tell, and then there's a word for to make known to. So this is more uh, foundational, like the Passover once again. This is going to be part of Israel's founding story of who they are, their identity. This is Israel's baptism. There's a reason that Jesus knew Joshua, New Testament Joshua, Jesus, goes to this spot at his baptism. There's a bigger picture that he's tying together. But he says, um, tell them, make them known, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now that's one tradition, the reading I just said, Joshua took up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan and set at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. This is the way the Masoretic text reads, where Joshua, it's saying, took the stones that had been carried from the river 
that were where the priests were standing in the middle of the river and set them up as a memorial. And that's one way of reading the Hebrew text. The Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, though, has a different tradition. And it says, Joshua also took 12 stones and put them at the spot in the river where the priest's feet were. So there's two ways of reading this text, and it depends on whether you read the Masoretic text or some of the other uh, manuscripts of the, the Greek translation of the Septuagint. Uh, so either Joshua took the 12 stones and made a memorial, or he took those 12 stones and made a memorial, but he, and then he also put 12 stones in the river at the spot, so that perhaps as the, the Jordan ebbs and flows during flood season and dry season, uh, the stones would have been visible in the river as well. Uh, either way, it doesn't really matter. The point is that Joshua is memorializing, not just for this generation, but for future generations, what's happening. He's, he's doing something tangible and physical that will always remind Israel about where they came from. There's something to a physical marker, a physical sign, a, a constant reminder of things that happened in the past. Why? Because sometimes the only way we can have the ability to face the future in hope and in confidence is by looking to the past, by seeing what God has done which proves and shows his character, that gives us the ability to hope and trust what he will do in the future, even in the face of the present circumstances, seem hopeless. And so that's part of what this is to be to Israel, a sign forever. This is to be, hey, remember where you came from. Remember, this is the God who split the waters. A God who split the waters is a God who you can serve. Because remember, the waters represent the divine power. The waters represent chaos. The waters represent um, a formidable barrier. And this is the God who even at his voice, natural elements of the world obey. That's, that's what people, that's what the Canaanites worshiped for. That's what the whole Canaanite fertility religion was about, getting the gods, Baal, Asherah, and others, to do what you want so that the elements of the universe would be favorable to you. And this, through the crossing of the Jordan and what's happening here, God is showing his sovereignty. Again, this is God. This is Yahweh, the God of all the universe. And he's going into Baal's own backyard and he's doing what people have been looking to Baal and other gods for all their lives. He's doing it for his people, his covenant people, Israel, Jew and Gentile together. Remember, Israel is not just ethnically Jewish. There's a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them. There's two of the people who left Israel as adults and entered into Canaan as adults. Of the two of them, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb was a Gentile. Remember that? A Kenizzite. So it's important to keep in mind that God's, God's, uh, God's people has never been about ethnicity or DNA testing or bloodline or any of that stuff that people today seem to think it is. God's people, even in the Old Testament, was always multinational because it was based on covenant obedience, not who your parents were. So the people of God are a people if they are in covenant with God. And those who are not in covenant with God or who are disobedient to the covenant are cut off from the people of God. This is an important concept, not just in the Old Testament, but even today in the modern world as we look around and figure out, you know, who, who are God's people? Who's God blessing? Uh, whose side should we be on? We're going to see in the next chapter, Joshua's going to meet somebody and he's going to ask him, whose side are you on? And the guy's going to put it into perspective that we, particularly as American Christians today, need to really recapture. But that's a sneak preview. I have to come back next week for that. So we pick up. He's made the memorial with the stones. 
and we stopped at, oh, verse 10. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was completed by the people. Just as Moses had directed Joshua, the people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had completed the crossing, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40 elif, and that's the word thousand. Those of you that were with us for the Numbers series, you remember the word thousand in Hebrew, elif, can also mean fighting unit. Um, so it could be a thousand, like a thousand men, or it could be a group of men called a thousand, uh, an elif, that are, that are ready for battle. That's check the number study if you want more on that. But the men, uh, about 40,000, 40 elif, armed for battle, crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. Now, why is this important? Well, Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, remember, these were the tribes who had already settled on the east bank of the Jordan River. They were the ones who said when they got to the land uh, on that side of the Jordan, not into Canaan, they said, hey, we, we kind of like it here. This is great for our cattle, for our pastures. Uh, can we stay here? And the other tribes were like, well, no, you don't get to stay here. You have to come in and help us secure our promise in the land that God's promised our people. And so they worked out a deal that they would keep their people west of the east of the Jordan, east of the Jordan. I always get those two mixed up. East of the Jordan, but they would send their fighting men into Canaan so that their other tribes, their brother tribes, would be able to have their inheritance and settle their land. Then once everyone was settled in Canaan, then the fighting men of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh could go back east of the Jordan and be with their people. And so this is showing them, keeping their promise, that even though Israel was a, a, a group of tribes, they were a unified group of tribes, at least at this point in the narrative. And that's important. Yeah, everybody had their own tribal loyalties, but they were all still part of Israel, the people of Israel. And so this is the, those tribes keeping the promise that they had made to Moses uh, that we saw at the end of uh, Deuteronomy. Excuse me, at the end of Numbers. So, verse 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua, or the word is made great, Joshua, in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him all the days of his life, just as they feared Moses. See, Joshua is now taking on the full mantle that Moses had given him, now he's getting divine approval. God raised him up as a leader. He did not have to exalt himself. Joshua never had to show anybody how great a leader he was. You know, the, the best leaders are the ones who never have to tell anybody they're great leaders. And the people who have to tell people they're great leaders are usually not the people you want to follow. <laughs> Interesting how that works. Joshua allowed the Lord to exalt him, to lift him in the eyes of the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. The priests are still in the water. Everybody's passed through. The waters are still backed up 15 miles upstream. And now he says, tell the priest, come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river, carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the 10th day of the first month, this would be around March or April. The people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern quarter of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? 
Make known to them, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. The NIV says the Jordan, but the Hebrew says this Jordan. This river, when they ask about the stones in this vicinity, this river we crossed on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth, or they could translate that all the peoples in the land, would know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So there's two reasons God's doing. Remember, this whole exodus and then bringing into the land, all of this was foretold 400 years before or more to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Go read Genesis 15 if you haven't read it yet. Because Genesis 15 is the mandate for everything we're reading in the book of Joshua. And God, after all this time, he's bringing Israel back into the land as his judgment on the Canaanites, the seven peoples of Canaan that's already been listed. He's coming and they, it is time for them to be judged in the land. Because why? God loves Israelites more than other people? No. Because the Canaanites, the particular Canaanites listed, their wickedness had reached levels like Sodom and Gomorrah type levels. God's judgment was now going to fall. But his judgment wouldn't be a supernatural judgment as much as it would be a judgment through Israel. Israel would be the sword of God's judgment against these peoples at this particular moment in Israel's redemptive history for the sake of all the world knowing God is not a God to be trifled with, that he is not a God who capriciously, arbitrarily allows good and evil to happen with no consequences. No, that he is a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but will judge sin when it's reached its full measure, as Genesis 15 puts it. So that's everything that's the background for what we're reading in Joshua, especially when we come to the battle scenes, when it starts to seem like, oh, God just loves Israel. No, God's doing all of this for the nations, for all of the world to know and to see it, and to know the type of God he is. And yeah, we, we aren't always comfortable with the type of God he is. But too bad. <laughs> He's God and we're not. He gets to do things that we aren't comfortable with sometimes. That's part of what deity consists of. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to puzzle us. It's going to make us scratch our head. We're going to wonder, um, you know, God, you seem kind of warlike and violent. But remember, God is doing this for a reason. And it's so that all the peoples of the earth will know. The hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you, and he's talking to Israel, so that you will fear God. See, we've, we've kind of passed with the A.D. to B.C. Uh, epic in history. We've kind of come to the, well, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is gentle and loving, meek and mild. Yeah, for the most part. But there are times when sin rises to such levels and evil, things like child sacrifice, Ritual prostitution worship, orgiastic worship, you know, uh, the, the rampant oppression of the poor for the, at the hands of the strong, the people that have in society taking advantage and trampling on the people that have not. All of these things are injustices that God cannot and does not overlook forever. And at some point, after warning, after warning, after warning, remember the Canaanites have had 400 years, at some point his judgment will finally, the sin will reach its full measure and his judgment then will be ready to fall. And so Israel is learning this along with the nations as well, and as we are when we read this. So the, as if to pick right up on that theme, chapter 5, and we'll, we stop here, we'll pick up the rest of the chapter next week, 
But the first verse in chapter 5 says, as if right on cue, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. All the peoples of the land are seeing and hearing. And we've seen last week with Rahab, or excuse me, two weeks ago with the Rahab story, we've seen what happens if the peoples of the land respond in, in reverent fear. If they respond how God wants them to respond with, that's the one true God and that's whose side we want to be on. Then like Rahab, they're brought into the God's people. Rahab's in the line of Jesus, remember, the line of David. Rahab is the lineage that gave birth to King David and King Jesus, a pagan Gentile woman prostitute. So that tells us at the beginning of Joshua, hey, it's not about ethnicity. It's about covenant. It's about who do you serve? Who will you serve? What do you do when you see the power of God in an undeniable way? Do you turn to that God or do you just double down and, and continue in disobedience? Um, so that's the recap for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to look at a really cool section. God's got to do some preparation. Israel's got to do some preparation before they go into battle. And it doesn't make much sense militarily. But if you've been following along with this study, God doesn't do very much that makes sense militarily from a human perspective. But that's because the battles aren't being fought from a human perspective. So we'll see you next week. We'll be back at Roots Chris. Again, sorry for the, the recap version, but, uh, you know, technical problems are what they are. Have a great week, everybody.